Щодня окупанти вбивали наших рідних і близьких. Ми не зітремо їхні імена. Ні з телефону. Ні з власної пам'яті. Ми ніколи їх не забудемо. Ми ніколи це не пробачимо. Ми ніколи не заспокоїмось, доки російські вбивці не понесуть заслужену кару. How does Russia's brutal and illegal invasion of Ukraine look from the perspective of a thoughtful Russian? Publicly opposes the war, is horrified by its conduct, has been motivated to painfully re-examine his country's own history and culture as a result. How has Russia's history and culture contributed to the political ecosystem that has made this genocidal war possible? And can Russia ever move beyond the corrosive imperial mindset that has led us to the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Well, today I've got just the guest to unpack these and other questions because he has written a book about all of them. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trending DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Berlin is Mikhail Zigon, a columnist for Der Spiegel, the founding editor-in-chief of the independent Russian TV news channel Dush TV and author of the recently published book War and Punishment Putin Zelensky and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine welcome back to the vertical Mikhail and congratulations on what is an excellent important and obviously very timely book thank you Brian thank you for having me and really thank you for the interest uh, uh, for the book I I do hope that uh, it's going to be interesting not, not only for both of us but for our audience as well. No, I, I'm certain it will be. I, it's a, a truth told. I liked your book so much, I read it twice. Um, so that's how much I liked it. Uh, I think everybody out there should 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 uh, should, should buy it and read it. Um, Mikhail, this book is obviously deeply, very personal for you. Um, and to get us rolling, I actually wanted to quote extensively and directly from your introduction, uh, where you wrote right, where you write right from the get-go. This book is a confession. I am guilty for not reading the signs much earlier. I, too, am responsible for Russia's war against Ukraine. As are my contemporaries and our forebearers, regretfully, Russian culture is also to blame for making these horrors possible. So that Russian culture may live on, we must act. We must start by looking inside ourselves and telling the truth about our past and our present. Russian, Ukrainian, and indeed any history is made up of myths. Alas, our myths led us to the fascism of 2022, and it's time to expose them. Just to get us rolling, can you share with our listeners the thought process that led you to write this book? And as you were writing it, what surprised you? What assumptions that you had about Russian and Ukrainian history were challenged as you researched this book? Uh, you're right that it was really personal thing, because um, frankly speaking, I started uh, writing it. I started thinking about the book about Ukraine uh, even before the war. I was meeting Ukrainians. I, uh, I met President Zelensky for the first time in 2021. And I had in mind that uh, it's necessary to write the book about the new phenomena that is uh, Ukraine today and Ukraine of President Zelensky. And that uh, 
first post-Soviet and post-colonial um, Republic of former Soviet Union. But um, when the war started, I was so shocked and so devastated. So I, I realized that everything I was thinking uh, before was outdated. And I, I understood that now my duty is to um, to start, uh, basically to start rewriting Russian history. Because it seems to me that that the way how we approach Russian history, when I say we, uh, I mean mostly Russian historians, Russian society, but also Western historians, because we don't have a- any other uh, concept of Russian history. We don't have any other narrative apart from imperial narrative that was right. created 300 years ago, that was artificially, uh, mythologically created 300 years ago. And uh, that imperial uh, historical narrative exists. It is being used by, by President Putin to justify his uh, war crimes, his um, his uh, invasion, his aggression against Ukraine. And that, I think that's, that's our biggest problem. We have never started uh, to rethink, um, to reconsider the way we approach our history. We, even after the collapse of Soviet Union, there was a lot of debate about uh, Stalin, good or bad, Gulag, um, how terrible it was, uh, how um, how unjust uh, the Stalin's purges were. But we have never started um, to expose the dangers of Russian imperialism, uh, the dangers of Russian exceptionalism. Uh, we, we have never understood that our approach to our history and to Russian uh, so-called great Russian culture, great Russian language, great Russian history, that was, um, in a way, uh, our approach to uh, to Russian exceptionalism paved the way for today's Putin's fascism. And we should start from the scratch. We should um, actually uh, debunk all of the previous imperial myths and try to understand what was wrong with Russia, what was wrong with with our traditional approach to Russian history. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I appreciated that very much for a lot of reasons. One of it was that kind of struck me as deeply personal because I learned this imperial version of Russian history in an American university during the Cold War, right? I mean, we yeah. had the exact same history was brought over to the United States and to Western Europe, uh, to North America and Western Europe from white Russian historians who fled Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution. They were embraced yep. by the West because they were not communists, right? They were whites. They weren't. They were. They were really Democrats. But they brought but this imperial In a way, they were more nationalists. They were more fascists than 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 Lenin was. And, right. and yes, they they uh, they 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 were um, desperately, fanatically uh, loyal to the same concept that that great Russian empire um, is superior and. Uh, and until now, most Russians do not believe that that Russia uh, be considered to be um, colonial empire. Any Russian today uh, would say, no, 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 no. Colonial British Empire was colonial empire. And uh, actually, just uh, just a couple of days ago, it was uh, it was very symbolic that President Putin, um, while delivering a speech uh, um, during. Uh, Far Eastern Economic Forum, Vladivostok said, "No, we uh, Russians have never been colonists. 
we have always been helping other nations. We have never been exploiting any other nation or ethnicity. And Putin truly believes in that. And 99% of Russians truly believe that that, uh, Russia didn't have colonies. Yeah, no, and at the heart of this, of course, is Ukraine, right? And this, I mean, I had my own kind of re-education about this when I was in my 30s. And I had like, I again, I had studied in this very traditional Soviet studies curriculum, which is imperial ver- version of Russian history. I went to the Soviet Union for the first time in the early 90s. And then after the breakup of the Soviet Union, I, 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 I took a position in Ukraine um, with an NGO there. And I took with me this very Russo-centric view of everything. But I was fortunate enough in Ukraine to be uh, to make friends with uh, a, a specific a Ukrainian historian, a Ukrainian Canadian historian uh, who worked with me and who basically helped to begin my re-education process and forced me to kind of re-examine my assumptions. Now I'm American, approaching this as a kind of specialist in this part of the world. It must be really, really difficult for a Russian national to approach this and to kind of re-examine your own history, which I, 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 I appreciate how you did this in the book. This is changing in Western countries now. I mean, history departments are now treating Ukrainian studies as a separate discipline from Russian studies. Ukrainian history is kind of being looked at on its own merits and not as kind of an adjunct of Russian history, which was the case quite unfortunately until relatively uh, recently. One of the things you did really well in the book um, that I really appreciated was to take the mythological image of historical figures. Uh, whether we're talking about Ivan Mazepa, uh, Taras Shevchenko, Stepan Bandera, and you contrasted that mythology to the actual historical record. And did, what were some of your main takeaways here? Because I found this part of the book absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you know, that's that's, that's really interesting. I uh, Even after I've read the, I've, I've written the book, uh, I suddenly was was striking by the fact that actually, uh, in Russian mindset, for many people, that the the medieval approach to the relationships between Russia and Ukraine, for for example, is still valid. So many people are still considering Ukraine as um, our uh, forefathers uh, uh, three three hundred years ago. It's uh. In, let, let me compare it to uh, the uh, relationships between England and Scotland. In today's England, um, everyone knows uh, names of, for example, William Wallace or Robert Bruce, the great mm. uh, national heroes of Scottish nation, and uh, they are considered the heroes. The Yes, they, they, yeah. they led the, res- the resistance, and uh, Robert Bruce, although in the beginning of his um, his life. He was loyal to the British, uh, to the English crown, and but then he he has become the the greatest king of the Scots. Um, and for example, when when uh, Mel Gibson made the fantastic movie Braveheart, no no Englishman uh, could mm, oppose and could be insulted, saying that wow, that's uh, um, that's an insult of uh, the memory of uh, great right. Uh, in English warriors, that's a falsification of history. Uh, but if if that that would happen to Ukraine and Russia, it's um, it's very funny that Russians today still consider leaders of independence movement in Ukraine to be traitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, Ivan Bezepa is actually Robert Bruce of Ukraine. Uh, uh, he he was also first loyal to to uh, to Moscow Tsar uh, Peter the Great, but then he realized that the interests of his nation um, make him um, fight fight for the freedom of his nation. So he he has never betrayed his own Ukrainian people, and that's really important for the history of Ukraine. But that's so funny that even today, ninety nine percent of Russians consider. Mazepa to be a great traitor, not a freedom fighter. And uh, that's the part of that mythology. And uh, uh, definitely we have to blame the greatest Russian poet, Alexander Pushkin. Mm -hmm. He has written uh, a propagandist myth about about Mazepa. And um, it was very important for me because, um, you know, there there is a huge miscomprehension between Ukrainians and Russians uh, right now because uh, many Ukrainians blame Russian culture, Russian writers, Russian poets, including Pushkin. Pushkin is, um, yeah. you know, th- that's the symbol of Russian culture. And there are a lot of uh, monuments to Alexander Pushkin all yes. over Ukraine, and they are being demolished. And yeah. lots of Russians, even liberal Russians, even those who live in exile, even those who oppose the war, are uh, sincerely insulted. They cannot understand. They say, no, 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 don't touch Pushkin. He is. He's the same. He's our sacred um, right. cow. Uh, they they cannot get it. Uh, they say no. Uh, he's not Putin. He's not to blame for this war. But actually, he is. Unfortunately, Russian culture bears that responsibility for for the um, uh, falsification of history, for the um, that mythology um, of treacherous Ukrainians and. And we we need to to understand that approach that uh, approach of Ukrainians today. We need to hear their their pain. We need to hear their voices. We we need to understand why they uh, are not ready to accept Russian culture anymore. When I say we, I mean Russians first of all. Yeah, and and your views on this, I mean, are deeply grounded in history and historical research. Um, I, I'm just curious. I mean, you're living in Europe now. You're soon to 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 move here to the U.S. I'm sure you're in contact with others in the in the Russian diaspora in in Europe. How common are your views? You just indicated that a lot of Russians, or even even Russians who are in exile who oppose the war, kind of are don't want to go the full distance in kind of looking at what is the real true cause of this. How many people share your views, do you think, among Russians? And I mean, I know you don't know an exact number, but just yeah. what's, what's your sense? That's very hard to estimate, but I guess that we're going to see it soon because my my book has, uh, uh, hasn't has been published in Russian yet. Yeah, ask you may, me that. Yeah, <laughs> you may imagine that that it's impossible to publish it inside the inside the country because I'm, I'm officially a foreign agent. My, my books cannot be published there. Uh, but um, I'm going to publish it myself uh, in Russian, and we, we, we have a plan how to, to distribute it, at least uh, within Russian diaspora, but probably uh, even inside the country as well. And um, I hope it's going to happen soon. And we, we are going to see that that scandal, and I'm afraid it's, it's going to be a huge scandal. I'm afraid that a lot of Russians are going to be insulted. I'm afraid that uh, I will find myself right inside that hurricane that that yeah. huge huge shitstorm and i will be accused um in disrespect 
for the great Russian saints, not only by by Russian propaganda, but maybe uh, by by some Russian liberals, maybe by by Russian intelligentsia that that is not ready to take the full blame, full responsibility uh, on behalf of uh, of great Russian culture. And I think that's that's the way that that uh, that we need uh, we, we we need to understand that it's inevitable because. Uh, unfortunately, um, Russia has to get rid of uh, that idea of Russian exceptionalism. Russia has, has to get through uh, those uh, at least 10 years of uh, uh, Putin's brainwashing that, that has created another generation of Russians that, um, that believe that this war could be justified, that believe that they, they have a right to be insulted by Ukrainians that just want to be free and just um, don't want to be a Russian colony. Um, I, th- I, I think we, we, we need a lot of work to, to get rid of all that uh, old imperial mythology that brought us to Russian fascism. Yeah, no, you've taken a giant step there. I mean, there's an old saying, Russian liberalism stops at the Ukrainian border. Um, and you seem to be trying to take it beyond the Ukrainian border, yeah. if, if, if you will here. And, and again, like I, you did, it comes across really strongly in the book how deeply you see that this is embedded in Russian culture. This isn't just Putin's war. This is Russia's war because the, this, this, culture, this imperial cultural mindset have kind of created the, the, the conditions for this. So I'm, I look forward to when your book is, uh, when your book is published in in Russian, and when that uh, when that shitstorm happens, I'll be glad to have you back on on the podcast to, to argue your, your, you know, your corner on this. But you, you know, I'm I'm a bit optimistic because you uh, you have quoted uh, Pavel Milukov, who used to be yeah. the foreign minister in the provisional government in 1917, and uh, that's that's yeah. his phrase that, that Russian liberal ends when uh, the Ukrainian question starts. But actually, you know that that Milukov was not only uh, ardent Russian patriot, and he thought that Ukraine is um, is the natural part of Russia. But he also wanted Constantinople to be uh, the new capital yep. of Russia. He, he wanted. He thought that Constantinople deserves to be the the Orthodox Christian city, and he wanted it to be conquered. So actually, we've come a long way. Milukov right. used to be used to be Russian liberal. Right. He, he used to he used to be one of the brightest Democrats in the beginning of uh, of the century, and and uh, uh, one hundred years ago, Russian liberal Democrats wanted to conquer Istanbul. Now um, it's not it's not a question about uh, about Turkey, and even Russian liberals um, equally agree that uh, there there is a terrible crime to the, the the invasion of Ukraine. So we we've come a long way, and I hope that that this approach is going to change uh, more and more. Yeah. And I'm actually hopeful about the younger generation in Russia, kind of the Russian equivalent of our millennials and Gen X, people in their 20s and 30s who have grown up, who have lived their entire lives with the with an independent Ukraine as a reality, right? And so this, I think we really, we, we could see some change with the younger generation. Another thing I really like that you did is you, you really, Ukraine's, history, independent history comes out in the book really strongly. The fact that Ukraine is a separate nation from Russia, um, something very obvious to me, but not going to be obvious to Russian readers. This comes out 
very, very strongly. Um, the fact that Ukraine for five centuries was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, um, which effectively was meant it was part of Europe, right? Now, there were there were interactions with Russia. There was intrigue between you, Ukraine and Russia um, at, in, in that period. Did you did this history surprise you as you were researching? Were you were you kind of learning this for the first time as you were reading this book? How did how did you how, like how did how did you approach this as you kind of looked at Ukraine's independent European history, independent of Russia? You know, I knew quite a lot, but uh, obviously not everything. And I I must uh, pay tribute to great Ukrainian historians. Now, for example, Sergei Plochi, who who has I, has written the great world gates of europe and um other ukrainian historians who who have written uh very remarkable um researches works on on ukrainian history and my my book is not uh, uh the history of ukraine i prefer uh to compare it to a detective story mm-hmm. in the, the point the point of view of the murderer i that's that's mm-hmm. about how, how russia was suppressing and trying to destroy uh, ukraine but yes, I was. I was. Um, I was many times really surprised. I uh, unfortunately, I, it's 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 a shame that I I didn't uh, read a lot the poems of great uh, Ukrainian uh, writer Taras Shevchenko, who was very well known in um, in Soviet Union and in the, in Russia t- today. He's a, a great, very famous name. But uh, as he was writing in Ukrainian in 19, back in nineteenth century. Yeah, um, his works are not known to average Russian, and I was, I was really surprised when, when I realized that uh, most of his greatest poems are about the desire of Ukrainian people to be independent. Uh, the, that he writes that he wants Russians to be dead. He wants to see the um, the waters um, of River Dnipro to be red uh, of Russian blood. He wants Ukraine to be to be free and independent country, and he doesn't recognize God until that moment uh, when Ukraine becomes independent. So My, that's I, I think that will be very very important for for an average Russian uh, that that uh, in nineteenth century uh, there, there was the only desire and the, the greatest wish of the of the Ukrainian nation, and it's not something like. Uh, um, uh, Putin ridiculously puts it that uh, Ukraine was invented by uh, by Lenin. Um, <laughs> that there is a ridiculous myth that uh, Ukrainian language is the same language as right. Russian, and there there is barely uh, any difference. It's like um, unfortunately a lot of people in Russia, in Europe, um, outside of Russia know so little about Ukrainian right. culture and, and Ukrainian history and that's 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 that very good and that that's tragic that right took us it took us a war to to know much better uh how how beautiful is Ukrainian culture and uh, how dramatic was Ukrainian history but it's very needed uh, for Russian people just to um to to come back to the ground we should um, we should realize that we are just uh, we are no different from uh, from other empires, other colonial empires, and many other colonials, uh, colonial empires have have started that that going that way. Br- British uh, Empire 
um, has has started and has gone along uh, yeah. that that road, try, trying to de- to debunk its historical myths. Rudyard Kipling, although he is a great author of um, Jungle Book, uh, has also uh, written um, a notorious uh, poem about white man's burden. Yes, and uh, and Britons today are not proud of that. How? What the hell? Why Russians are still proud of the most infamous and the most um, terrible uh, uh, works of Russian literature? Yeah, no, and I th- again, this the 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 honesty you brought to this, it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's impossible not to kind of feel it as you're reading this book. Uh, my, our listeners should understand. I I really love this book, and I'm encouraging all of our listeners to go out and and read it it's very important before we move into the second half and in the second half i do want to talk about where we go from here i'm going to start with your epilogue i found your epilogue really really moving but i'll get to that in the second half i did want to kind of talk look at look at the the the, you divided the book into kind of two two structures two two sections you talked about historical myths about ukraine you called this tales of colonial uh oppression the myth of unity the myth of of uh, betrayal the myth of language and and and, uh, the myths of lenin and then the second half, you looked at tales of present day oppression, which basically looked at kind of the the post Soviet period. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you approach these two sections and what you were trying to do in these two sections? Uh, yeah, that was very important for me to explain that all the word myths Putin is trying to to use, and um, uh, he's trying trying to bring them back to life are deeply rooted in um, in Russian history, and actually all of his uh, all of his points he's he's um, repeating again and again. They they are not uh, created by him personally. They are they were uh, artificially um, created three hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, and uh, all of those traditional imperial uh, Russian myths they. They were used against Ukraine. They they were used by Russian politicians, as well as by Ukrainian politicians, by Ukrainian political elites sometimes, by Ukrainian oligarchs, by Russian oligarchs. They 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 have been used during the the last three decades as well, and that they are still alive. And it's um it's it's very important. It's very interesting how it resonates now. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I particularly like the chapter on on the myth of unity. I, I thought that was uh, that was that was really d- well done, and it was a direct rebuke. And I don't know if you were consciously doing this, but it appeared to me to be a direct rebuke to Putin's infamous article in July of 2021 on the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian pe- uh, people, which I I I read it. It was torturous. I, I felt like I needed to go see a, a psychologist after after. <laughs> After reading that, but were you tr- in that chapter? Were you were you specifically trying to rebuke Putin's article, or because you guys uh, just I couldn't help but note the use of the word unity in the title of the chapter and the u- word unity in the title of Putin's article? You know, unfortunately, uh, I know that means not from from Putin's uh, Putin's article. I was grown up. Uh, I, I I grew up with it. I was studying in in Soviet school, and I I know that myth about the the glorious reunification of uh, Russia and Ukraine of uh, uh, 1654 right. from my child from my childhood and that was that was the uh, very important myth uh, and it was very important for for Stalin uh, you, right. you probably know you yeah. probably know that that the main character of, of, of the first chapter 
Bogdan Milnitsky, the, right. the, the, the great founder of the, the independent Ukrainian state in the 17th century, has been uh, made a symbol of Ukraine by, by Stalin. In, and in 1941, Stalin, Stalin ordered um, to make a movie about Bogdan Milnitsky, the propagandist movie that, that, that would persuade um, Ukrainian population to fight for the Red Army, not to, not to switch sides to um, to to side uh, with, with Germans. Uh, Stalin invented the the order of Bogdan Milnitsky. So it was um, the the mythology of the unity between um, Russia and Ukraine, and the the idea that Russians and Ukrainians were the same people. That myth was invented in the 17th century, but it was always maintained by next and next Russian emperors. It was maintained by Stalin. Uh, probably Stalin sincerely believed, oh, he pre preferred to believe in that. And unfortunately, Putin uh, does believe in it. Yeah, he, he he was born and raised with that myth yeah. in his blood. Yeah, and like the, the genealogy of how this kind of historiography developed of this, which I, I, I found uh, really interesting. Before we move into the second half, I also did want to touch on one other thing that I, which I, I actually really enjoyed because a lot of it I didn't know. This um, you have Zelensky's backstory as you're kind of doing the kind of the present day oppression piece of this. You're kind of like bringing, you're, you're you interspersed what Zelensky was doing at different points in Ukraine's kind of post-Soviet development, um, and you, you obviously find him a, a, a fascinating character. Uh, here uh, and and it's his kind of coming to this realization of of being a Ukrainian patriot and the process of how this happened. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I I found that just really really interesting and engaging. Yeah, I think that that's really important because uh, Zelensky himself is a very important uh, important symbol of that transition that that Ukrainian people uh, um, have made because he he's slightly older than me so he was uh he was um, taught in the same same soviet school as as i was so as a kid he was he was the um, the uh, russian jewish boy uh raised in the soviet ukraine and he was taught all those myths about the uh, um, uh unity of uh, russia and ukraine he he started from from that base he started when when he sincerely believed in all the Soviet, the imperial myths, as most Ukrainians uh, or many Ukrainians believe um, in the Soviet period. And that's very interesting how, how he was changing, how he and uh, Ukrainian society, he, he is just very remarkable representative. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he was changing himself. He, he started uh, viewing himself and his country with with a different uh, with a different lens, uh, he stopped considering him, himself a second class citizen because he was not because he he didn't live in Moscow. He went to work in Moscow, and then he realized that he needs to come back. He has to go back to Kiev. He he changed his attitude to his background, to his country, to his culture. Um, he um, he learned Ukrainian, although. Mm -hmm. he, he comes from Russian-speaking family, and it's 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 everything very symbolic. Uh, during the last thirty years, uh, Ukraine 
uh, Ukrainian people as as the phenomena, uh, they have become um, um, probably the only post-Soviet, um, post-colonial um, state that that exists on the territory of former Soviet Union. They 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 learned how not to consider themselves to be a Russian colony. They they have um, managed to um, to overcome that Soviet legacy, that imperial imperial background. Uh, so and that's that that's very remarkable. And Zelensky is the symbol of uh, of that. He is a stand-up comedian, and I right. I, I I always quote uh, the jokes he was. Um, um, writing he was creating d- during his career as a stand-up comedian and uh back uh 30 years ago or t- uh, 25 years ago uh he, he was joking in a way that we considered totally unacceptable in, in ukraine today because that um that perception self-perception has has changed a lot um all all the ukrainian humor 20 years ago was very um, anti-Ukrainian was very mm-hmm. Russian was very colonial. They considered themselves to be a colony, and it has changed dramatically. And it has gone, and that's a very inter- that's a very impressive transition. Yeah, no, I thought it was a great metaphor for the transition, and I actually witnessed this transition, having lived in Ukraine in the '90s, having lived in the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine in the '90s in Odessa, um, and then have coming back regularly since that um almost every year and you, you this transition is is very visible uh, among russian speaking ukrainians right um mm-hmm. and 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 zelensky is kind of emblematic of that of that kind of epiphany uh, almost that that uh that russian speaking ukrainians have had so I, I i i i um i really enjoyed that that aspect of the book that's a good way for us to shift gears as i'm keeping an eye on the clock here in a few moments we will continue our discussion and address the question lurking just beneath the surface of this important book can a defeat in ukraine put a stake in the heart of russia's imperial mindset and finally lead to political change there i'd like to remind you you are listening to the power of podcast which is produced by the university of texas arlington's mcdowell center for global studies in partnership with the atlantic council I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Berlin is the one and only Mikhail Zegar, a columnist for Der Spiegel, the founding editor-in-chief of the independent Russian TV news channel Dusht, and author of the recently published and very important book, War and Punishment, Putin Zelensky and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. I got my copy. You should all get yours. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to our vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the website formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Vina змінила долю багатьох сімей, переписала історії наших родин, змінила наші звичаї та традиції. Раніше дідусі розказували онукам, як били нацистів. Тепер онуки розповідають дідусям, як б'ють расистів. So, Mikhail, 
Uh, I'm going to quote from you back to yourself again to get us rolling in the second half here. In your epilogue, you quote directly from Volodymyr Zelensky's address to the Russian people on September 11th, 2022. And I'm quoting directly here from Zelensky, which you quote in the book. Do you still think we are still one people? Do you still think you can scare us, break us, force us to make concessions? You really don't get it. Don't you understand who we are, what we are fighting for, what we are about? With gas or without you, without you. Without electricity or without you, without you. Without water or without you, without you. Without food or without you, without you. For us, cold, hunger, darkness, and thirst are not as dangerous and deadly as your friendship and brotherhood, but history will sort things out and we will have gas, electricity, water, and food, and it will be without you. And then you add here to kind of get into how, because I found your epilogue just really, really powerful. You add, to imagine a world without us is the main challenge facing Russians right now. And then later in the epilogue, you write very powerfully, many of us are still drugged up, intoxicated by the grandeur of imperialism. We've been smoking this drug for centuries, feeding our own vanity. The myth of greatness was spooned down our throats, injected into our veins, and it made us high. We escaped reality, no longer saw what was happening around us, lost our empathy and human aspect. It's time to get off the needle, because we're in, da we're in danger to ourselves and to others. Imperial history is our disease, and it's inherently addictive, and the withdrawal symptoms will hurt, but this is inevitable. We have to return to reality and realize what we have done. We have to learn this lesson to stop believing in our own uniqueness, to stop being proud of our vast territory, to stop thinking we are so special, to stop imagining ourselves as the center of the universe, its conscience, its source of spirituality. It is all bunk. Uh, very, very powerful words, my friend. Um, you are calling here for nothing short uh, of the end, then the end of Russian messianism, the end of Russian exceptionalism, and ultimately the end of Russian imperialism. How does this happen in your view? Is this going to happen in practice? I mean, I see you, what you seem to be trying to do with this book and specifically with this epilogue is to start a conversation among Russians. No? Yes, I think that it's going to be long. And indeed, for me, this book is my attempt to start that conversation. I think it's right time just to start thinking it, discussing it. And, and yes, I am, uh, I'm offering myself as a, the target uh, mm -hmm. for criticism, for, uh, for people to curse me, uh, for people to be insulted. But, but that, that dialogue, that conversation needs to be started. And I think that's the only way uh, to get through uh, Putin's dictatorship to get um, get rid of uh, current um, war to current Russian fascism because uh, yes uh, if Putin dies tomorrow probably the war the, there is a possibility uh, that the war would uh, would come to an end but what should we do with, with a lot of people who, uh, who still believe that it was the right thing to do who still believe that that it's worthy, who still believe that that Russia has its exceptional interests and exceptional rights, and they they still believe that uh, that God is with is always with with Russia. We we need to um, to start from the scratch. 
And I think that, that that's going to be long. And you know what? Uh, every time I, I try to, um, every time I'm, I'm writing, uh, articles about that or uh posts on social media uh my, my my book hasn't been published yet but uh i i'm trying to express that idea every time i get the same question from from my russian readers they ask me okay and are you going to fight as fiercely against american imperialism mm. british imperialism are you going to debunk those uh they the historical myths i um and my answer is, is very clear. Uh, let American historians deal with American history. Let right. British uh, historians deal with British history. I'm Russian historian. I'm Russian writer and journalist. I have to start with, with ourselves. And that's the first question. But uh, the first answer, the second answer that, yes, unfortunately, our imperialism has brought us here. We, ha we are, uh, as you quoted, we are dangerous to ourselves and to our neighbors. So we have to start doing something to, to our beliefs, not uh, to our um, activities. Now you, I mean, you, you, when you were in Russia, you were, a, you were a very public figure. You were the editor-in-chief and founder of Dosh TV. I, 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 I used to see you on TV long before we actually knew each other personally. I mean, your, your words have some power um, among the Russian public, specifically among the Russian liberal public. Has most of the feedback you've gotten so far? I would say specifically among younger Russians, because yeah, uh, I I know that that uh, like uh, all of my previous books uh, um, happened to be bestsellers in Russia, and they were especially popular among younger Russians, yeah. uh, those in the twenties and uh, and thirties. So so yes, I I hope that it's going to be very um, very important for for the for younger Russians because it's. Um, it's not too late for many people to start uh, to start from the scratch, to start uh, de destroying their beliefs, their, uh, their lies that they used to believe in. Yeah, and and also another thing I'm curious about is what have you heard from Ukrainians? I mean, uh, like I said, the book's only published in English at, at this point, but uh, Ukrainians can read English, obviously, right? Have you gotten any response from uh, from Ukrainian readers about? You know, yes, that was very important for me, and uh, I gave it uh, to several several friends, uh, several Ukrainian friends, to sit as well as to several Russian friends. But um, as uh, yeah, it was, it was very it was very important for me to be uh, to be understood by the Ukrainians as well. Uh, for example, I was very thankful to to Professor Sergei Plochi, who mm -hmm. has read the book and um, kind of endorsed it, and then mm -hmm. told me that that it's it's very needed and it's the right thing to do. Um, a lot of my friends, Ukrainian journalists who are now in Ukraine and Kiev, uh, um, have read it, and uh, they had they they shared some, some ideas, they corrected some something that they considered to be mistakes but but they they genuinely supported me they uh they told me that that i should not be afraid uh a reaction from uh, uh any kind of outrage from from kiev because uh the ukrainian society they say uh we understand that that i'm i'm trying to fight russian imperialism uh and i'm i'm their ally i'm, I'm doing the same thing uh they are doing 
And you, you yeah, mentioned, yeah, go ahead. But yes, but yes, it's, it's still, it's still really important. I think that, that much, I, I'm going to hear much more criticism and much more different uh, reactions after the book is going to be published in Russia. In Russia. And maybe are you planning on publishing it in Ukrainian? Um, I would love to, but I, you know, I, um, I created my own publishing house to, to publish it, uh, in Russian. In, in, in Russian, I wouldn't dare to publish it in Ukrainian myself. Aha, uh-huh, you would want a Ukrainian publishing house to do that. And on the subject of Ukraine, I mean, another thing that kind of came out in the book is kind of your interpersonal relations with Ukrainians and the U- Ukrainian friends that you had. And you noted that you 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 were writing uh, all the all the Kremlin's men, your previous book, in the apartment of a Ukrainian friend in, in, in Ukraine. And this Ukrainian friend now was not speaking to you because she considers you an imperialist because you're Russian. Have you reconciled with those Ukrainian friends since the publication of of books? Um, I know there was this kind of these personal kind of uh, anecdotes that were in the book about that as well that I found very moving. You know, yeah, that that's a bit of a personal story, uh, and my answer is no. I know that that she knows about the book. I know that uh, I'm not sure if if she has read it or not. I know that she knows about that. She 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 definitely um, has read the the introduction, the mm-hmm. her 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 story in my book, and um, she kind of proved it. And she 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 told all uh, common uh, friends that okay, it's it's okay, it's it's fine that that he has written that that. That was not the reason for her to continue talking to me, and uh-huh. I think, you know. And actually, I understand that. I I think that that's um, that's okay. Uh, she she's got that right. Uh, I understand Ukrainians that don't who don't want to talk to Russia. I understand that. I think they they have that moral right, and we and we don't have any moral right to impose ourselves. We uh, we should respect their their feelings if they prefer um, to live without us. Literally, uh, uh, let let them do that. I'm I'm writing that that book not to um, not to make friends to to my um, to the people I used to know, and not not to not to show them that that I'm I'm better than than mm-hmm. they thought of me. No, no, I'm I'm trying to. Um, I mean, I I have my own my own war. I have to fight uh, uh, all those uh, myths. I have to fight uh, those factors I hate. Um, I will be glad if uh, if my uh, attempts are going to be helpful for them. But I understand um, if we are not going to uh, to see each other again. That's okay. I I will understand that. Oh, that's that that that's that's very well said. Uh, I, I'm do you have any plans to to go to Ukraine and present the book in Ukraine? Have you been to Ukraine since the war started? Uh, you know, I would love to. Actually, I was uh, uh, last September a year ago. I was invited to participate in uh, a huge um, Ukrainian conference. It's called the Yalta European Strategy. Uh, yes. yes, yes, that's a conference organized by Viktor Pinchuk. Yes, some kind of Ukrainian Davos. Uh, and it was a very awkward situation when uh, when we when, when we found out that me and organizers that uh, I've got Russian passport and um, 
therefore I cannot uh, legally enter uh, Ukrainian territory. Um, so I, but I still participated uh, by Zoom, and I was on the same the same panel with with an, an Applebaum and Ruth okay. Uh They were physically present uh, uh, in Kiev, and I, I was digitally there. Um, but no, unfortunately, I wasn't able to right. uh, to come there physically. Although I, I'm uh, I'm always in touch with with my Ukrainian friends. I interviewed, I uh, I organized the one and only interview of a Russian journalist with President Zelensky after the uh, the war started. I interviewed um, a lot of Ukrainian uh, journalists, um, business leaders, uh, uh, politicians for this book. So so I'm. Um, I think that I'm still. I know that 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 I still have uh, very very close relationships with, with a lot of a lot of Ukrainians. Yeah, no, I'd hope you'd be able. I, I was just able to go in in May, and the, the 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 atmosphere there is just remarkable. I mean, I've been coming to Ukraine since the '90s, um, but I never saw it the way I saw it in May. I was I was I was only in Kiev, um, but the 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 atmosphere is just so positive and determined and and truly inspiring i was i was really inspired by the the several days i spent in kiev uh back in um in may we're bumping up against the end but the last thing i did want to talk about is um this is something i've always maintained that political change would come to russia when it lost decisively in ukraine this is something i said back in 2014 in the initial russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, the initial invasion of the Donbass, the, the the annexation of Crimea. I said at the time, the catharsis that would be set off by quote unquote losing Ukraine, that is not to concede that it is Russia's to lose, but in the minds of uh, uh, of, uh, of of Russian leaders to, to lose quote unquote lose Ukraine would create a catharsis, would maybe be the catalyst finally for positive political change in Russia. Do you think that's accurate? Is the is would defeat in the war the provide this catharsis, or would it create a Russia that is going to be seeking revenge? Um, you know, there was this first, there was a strong belief among Russian uh, liberals, among Russian middle class, that uh, any military defeat is always useful for Russia. That when Russia was defeated uh, during the Crimean War in 19th century, that led to the great reforms of uh, uh, Alexander II and serfdom was abolished. When Russia was defeated in the, the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, it led to the first Russian Revolution. When it it nearly uh, lost this uh, the, the the First World War, it led to the Revolution of 1917. Uh, the Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, so obviously, it's it's clear uh, uh, there is a very um, you know sexy historical parallel. But, yeah, you know, we we should not believe in historical parallels. We know that that uh, history does not repeat itself. And uh, and yes, I do think that that Russia being defeated would be would be very very helpful because. Um, it's not only about Putin. Uh, Putin, if Putin is dead, if Putin is gone, that's not enough. I would prefer to see him uh, uh, on trial. I would prefer to see him in the age. Um, I would prefer 
yes, I would pre- prefer to see a huge process uh, against Russian fascism, against uh, all those people who organized that uh, aggression against Ukraine. And yes, I think that that uh, if Russia is defeated, that would be very, very that 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 would be a condition, very important uh, condition. Uh, for the new development for Russia, and that that would be probably a possibility to start from the beginning, from the blank page. Um, I don't think that that Russia being defeated is the uh, is enough. Mm-hmm. I I don't think that that's the only condition. There should be a lot of factors. Uh, uh, there is factor of luck. We should right. be lucky, and and there this there there should be a lot of uh, um, a lot of politicians uh, or or just bunch of politicians uh, brave enough and with values, the, the, those politicians who believe in values, because uh, 100 years ago, Russia uh, lost the war, but the politicians who uh, who were capable to take the power were Bolsheviks. They had very, very wrong values, and they, mm-hmm. they led R- Russia into a totally different direction. And for, for example, I, I hope that Alexei Navalny uh, would be uh, safe and sound and would, would make it out of prison. And because I, I believe that he's got uh, all those uh, true democratic values needed uh, for the, the uh, future Russia. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's very hard for me because right now what we see, um, Russia, the, the, the possible defeat of Russia, uh, according to um, what, what I hear from Moscow, what I hear from from Putin's inner circle uh, depends on America, and Putin is absolutely is one hundred percent sure that that the time is on his side, and uh, he can just wait till Donald Trump uh, comes back to the White House and the international support uh, to Ukraine will vanish, and Russia is not going to be defeated. So, and uh, you know, it's very hard. Uh, to be 100% skeptical when you hear that. And I hear that from my sources in Moscow almost on a daily basis. No, it's a concern we have here in Washington. To, and we, many of us are kind of speaking loudly to key to make sure this support continues. Uh, fortunately, there still is pretty much bipartisan support um, and 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 uh, overwhelming majority support in society. And as the war drags on, that could, that could, that can get eroded. But um but what I hear you saying is a defeat in Ukraine is a it's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition to, to, to lead to positive political change. Mikhail, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I'm, I'm glad you were able to come on. I'm glad we were able to do this. And I, I'm looking forward to, to to doing it again. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in Berlin next week. Um, on that note, we will wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to Powerful Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Berlin has been Mikhail Ziga, a columnist for Der Spiegel, the founding editor of the independent Russian TV news channel Dorscht, and author of the recently published, very important and must-read book, War and Punishment, 
Putin, Zelensky, and the path to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I've got my copy. You all should get yours. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes for today's program. Mikhail, thank you for an enlightening, honest, and very important discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He's keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making me and all of us sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of a Podcast and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the platform, formerly known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and on Blue Sky at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 